Hello everyone, welcome to Think with ABD podcast, a podcast about accelerating growth at the intersection of analytics, digital and design. I'm your host today, Michelle. I'm super excited to join Jennifer Real in today's episode. So Jennifer Real is a global director of strategy at IDEO, the world's most impacted design thinking institute. Prior to IDEO, Jennifer spent a decade teaching at the Roman School of Management in Toronto, and especially the subject of innovation and strategy. Jennifer is also co-author of a book called Creating Greater Choices, A Leader's Guide to Integrated Thinking. In the past decade, Jennifer has been spent time helping companies like Target, Lego, Porter Gamble, in revamping their innovation. So I'm super thrilled to ask Jennifer to join today's episode. Um, personally, I always have a question whether it is possible for anyone to be a strategist. And I really hope in today's conversation, and Jennifer can help us answer the questions and also teach us what strategy means to her. Let's welcome Jennifer. Thank you. It's lovely to be here. So strategy to me um, is not uh, a painfully long, months-long process. It's not a budget. It's not an action plan list. Strategy fundamentally, at its very core, is the set of choices that you're making to win in a particular way. And that can be true for an organization, that can be true for a sports team, that can be true for a person, right? What will I do and what will I not do to achieve this big audacious goal that I have? And the clearer and more specific and more concrete we can be about what those choices are, the specific choices that are most helpful to consider, the more likely we are to have a great winning strategy than a less successful, mediocre strategy. What do you think about the role of a design in strategy? So I think of design and strategy as a perfect marriage. If, if we go back to the origins of design thinking, which is uh, one of the ideas that IDEO helped popularize in the world, design thinking has, has three very big contributions, I think, to the world. The first was saying, instead of starting with technology or instead of starting with a business problem, we should start with a user. We should start with a real human being who has real needs. And that should be the basis for our innovation. So that was the first big contribution of design thinking. The second was to say, instead of looking for a single right answer and very quickly coming to that right answer and then executing it, we should diverge. We should explore multiple possibilities. We should uh, expand our consideration set. That's the second big contribution. And then the third is that we should actually test to learn. We should build stuff, not with the intention of validating it, but build it to break it, build it to figure out what doesn't work, build it so that we can learn from it. And I think that if you apply that same mindset to the world of strategy, you wind up in a much better place. So strategy sometimes um, is treated as a very analytical task, right? I have a strategy problem. Uh, I have to think about the future of my firm. And so I'm going to analyze my way to the answer. I'm going to crunch all of the numbers and somehow out of that will pop a brilliant answer. And then I will just tell the organization to execute it. And I think instead, the, the way that I think about strategy is to say, and we've got to frame our possibilities for strategy, both with an understanding of the business context and our customer, right? Because businesses only exist if customers choose to buy from us. And so we've got to think about that intersection very powerfully. We have to consider multiple possible futures for, for strategies. So just like design. Um, and we have to test and learn. We have to figure out for this strategy to be successful, what would have to be true. And then I'm going to go and test and learn before I choose which strategy to move forward with. So I think of design and strategy as, as having similar dimensions. And I also think that very specific design tools make us better strategists. So the ability to go and do both qualitative and quantitative research with users is going to help us do a better job of choosing our possibilities. The ability to visualize our thoughts and build quickly, again, really helps with testing. Uh, so I think 
designers can be really, really, really critical uh, assets to any team that's working on strategy uh, because they have the ability to help us do those things really well. So I know Jennifer yourself has been helping out with a lot of companies, especially in the innovation journey. Based on your experience, what are the most common mistakes leaders make today in innovation? Yeah, I think there are a few that are very, very common. The first is trying to do it by themselves. So kind of locking themselves in a room and trying to make the strategy perfect and then telling the organization, this is it, this is the strategy, go do it. I think it's really hard for folks in the organization to be handed a piece of paper that says, this is the strategy and then be excited to make it happen. Right? I think that's very, very challenging. I think the second big mistake they make is failing to make real choices, trying to be everything to everyone. So in order to have a winning strategy, you have to be able to say no to some things. Because if you, if you think about any, any company you know and love, if they are trying to do everything for everyone, they are probably over-serving their worst customers and mm -hmm. under-serving their best customers. The exact opposite of what you would want, right? And right. so we want you to be able to say, in order for me to win in the way I'm choosing, I'm not going to do these things. I am going to do these others. And I think so the second big mistake leaders make is trying to do everything, trying to hedge their bets instead of really choosing and executing along the line of that choice. Um, and I think the third one is defining winning solely in terms of the stock price of the company. So about 50 years ago now, there was a very famous article that said the entire purpose of an organization is to serve its shareholders. Mm -hmm. And um, what that has produced in far too many companies is uh, managing to the stock price and managing to the quarter. So if you've ever been on a team and, and you know you need some more resources to deliver on your project and you've been told we can't give you any money right now because then mm -hmm. we'll miss our quarterly numbers, you've mm -hmm. experienced what this means. Many companies have starved the innovation out of their organization in service of a higher stock price, which works right. today, but <laughs> you're sort of betting your today uh, against tomorrow. You're giving up tomorrow by not investing in innovation, by not um, having robust innovation teams who are thinking about the next frontier, the, the next thing that we need to do tomorrow. So I think there is a disconnect between what a top management thinking are important in terms of the share price versus what the rest of the team are thinking is important. Um, maybe beyond all the stock price and shareholders return, there's a higher calling about customer needs and wants. They are far more important than just the uh, stock price. Absolutely. And I think you know, innovation teams, strategy is so important. Because think about how often you have one million things that are requested of you from the organization. I'm only slightly exaggerating. Could do. And so innovation teams having their own strategy. What is it we exist to do? What is the core value we're creating for the organization? Is it about doing what we do today a little better? Mm -hmm. Is it about inventing like medium length uh, time horizon things that are near to the businesses we have today? Or, are, or do we exist to provoke the organization and right. go much further out and to invent new business lines entirely? Right. Those are very different skill sets. Sure. And trying to do all of them simultaneously with all of the requests on your desk, it, again, it's really hard to do that with excellence. So let me ask you a very hypothetical question. Imagine there's a Fortune 500 company is currently losing market share. In order to kind of connect with the employee and especially those innovation managers who has presented things on, uh, on their place, and the company is thinking of maybe start with a mission statement, start with a, you know, what are the big goals we try to accomplish. So how would you suggest a company like that? Do you think uh, we should all start with an objective and, and kind of a work from? Yeah, I'm not a tremendous fan of vision statements, I'll be honest. I think that um, 
you want to understand what your purpose is. Right. Why do we exist? And you want to define the answer to five questions in order to have a strategy. So the five questions are, what is our winning aspiration? How are we as a group defining winning? Uh, so this is saying, you know, five years from now, we will have won if, right? And so this is where you want to be able to say winning is the organization is more effective and efficient or winning is we've introduced three new companies that didn't exist five years ago, right? Those right. would be different ways of defining winning. You then want to be able to say, what's our playing field? Who do we serve? Who's our most important internal customer? Defining very clearly who you serve. Um, what are we offering? Are we doing the innovation projects ourselves? Are we doing it shoulder to shoulder with internal teams? Are we training the rest of the organization in what innovation is? Are we doing design and delivery? We're just one or the other. Are we a lab? Are we an integrated team, right? So what are we right. really offering? Um, are we doing it globally? Are we doing it regionally? All of those sorts of playing field questions. Then how do we win? What is our competitive advantage? And for an innovation team, you have to think about compared to what. So what is our advantage compared to what? And you can think of it as all the other ways innovation could happen in this company. Makes so sense. how does having this team make the company better off versus letting the business units do it themselves, hiring an outside firm, or not doing it at all, right? You need an answer to why us, why are we better? And that might be that there are benefits of scale or there's a depth of knowledge required or we have um, you know, the ability to create these teams so we can do it more quickly than you could do. So you need to have an answer about what's our competitive advantage. And then the last two questions, um, what capabilities will we need? So do we need design thinking capabilities? Do we need Software engineers, do we need agile scrum leaders? You know, what, are the, what are the capabilities that we need? And then what are the systems that we need to have in place? What actually enables us to do our work together and achieve that aspiration? So for me, to go back to your initial question, which is you know, do you start with a vision or with a plan? Strategy actually sits between those two things, right? Strategy is the five-year roadmap. And then you do need an annual plan or a three-month plan or a weekly plan, depending on how fast you're moving and the size of your organization. That, that makes sense given the strategy, that, that fits within it. So if that's where we're trying to be five years from now, this is what I have to do this year. That's really the connection between the two. So Jennifer, if you are given the opportunity to go back to the first company you work for, um, how would you approach the whole situation differently? Would you ask them to maybe ditch the whole vision statements and start with something completely different? Or would you do something else? The reason I'm asking the question, I think it's a very common thing for company feel like, well, I'm falling behind and I want to do something innovative. And the best way to do that is go back to the uh, vision statement. But it seems like it's not the most effective approach going forward, right? So if you don't mind, share a little bit uh, of your thought on this. Yeah, I would say it's not valuable to ask 100 people to think about your organizational strategy. Um, that the people who need to think about the organizational level strategy are the people accountable for delivering it. So the senior leadership mm -hmm. team. That said, an organization does not have one strategy, right? Right. There are nested strategies. So the organization has a strategy, the leaders of the different parts of the organization, whether that's business units or right. functions have a strategy. Right. You as a team leader have a strategy. And the people on your team have a strategy. Mm -hmm. They mm -hmm. nest like a little set of you know, nesting cups or nesting dolls. They need to make sense together. And so rather than saying, let's have 100 people figure out our mission, vision, and values, what I would say is have your senior leaders craft what they believe is a great strategy. 
have them share it with the organization and, and ask, what have we missed? Help us make it better. And then say to the rest of the organization, now go build your strategy, right? Based <laughs> right. on what we've created here. Exactly. So I think they had a very positive intention. So let's talk more about a, a collaboration innovation model. I think nowadays it's very common to have an analytics professional working alongside with innovation managers. So do you recommend, um, you know, could you recommend any advice for, you know, how we could encourage analytical professional work effectively with the innovation manager? This is a great question because I, I feel the pain of those analytical folks because you have a different toolkit you have a different language system, you have a different, what we might call mental model of the world, right? And so when folks with, from analytics backgrounds talk to each other, it all makes perfect sense. And then when you start to talk to the folks on the, on the other side who have a very different education, um, then sometimes it can be challenging to collaborate, to work together. You can't assume the person sitting across from you when you say we need to do this quickly. Mm -hmm. You might have meant we need to have this done in two weeks and they might hear we need to have it done tomorrow or we need to have it done in two months. Quickly might mean something very, very different to them because of their context. So being more concrete and recognizing that when we use more abstract language, it's, it's less straightforward for them to understand. So whatever we can do to visualize, to make really clear, so sketches um, and uh, whatever other very rough ways of communicating what is in our minds so that they can respond to that concreteness, I think is really, really helpful. Um, I think that, that folks with science and, and statistics and analytical backgrounds are actually great strategists because they're very, very curious about understanding the world as it is. And then the, the challenge can be, okay, now let's imagine what it could look like. And so it's also about practicing your ability to say, well, that's what the data said. Now, what could I do differently? How could I change the world based on, um, you know, if I designed it differently? than it is today. I know we talk a lot about testing in other podcasts. So I just want to maybe ask you a question. Uh, what do you think about the importance of a testing, especially in today's environment? And also, if you can suggest some uh, advice for someone who's also analytical and what's the best way to work with uh, people with very distinct background, especially in a testing phase. So I think of testing as, as being very, very aligned with how folks uh, who, who come from analytics backgrounds think already because it's really the scientific method. I have a hypothesis and I'm going to go test it and recognizing that there are many different levels of resolution of tests, right? You can um, build something very basic, a basic wireframe, or you can, uh, you know, ask a little data set, some questions, right? Or you could go much bigger and try to get to statistical significance and, and scale. And so I think what we want is the ability to do tests of all sizes, right? To think what is the lowest resolution, cheapest version of this test that gives me a little bit of a sense of direction and some confidence to move forward. And then over time, what are the tests that get bigger and more scaled? And what is it that I'm testing each time? So if you think about um, your data science, if you change too many things all at once in your parameters and it goes wrong, it's really, really hard to know what went wrong. And similarly, if you try to test too many things all at once, then it can be hard to make sense of the outcome of the test. So trying to define smaller bite-sized tests of the things we most care about is very, very important. So if I want to understand um, what consumers feel about a price change and what they feel about the color of the package and what they feel about the brand and what they feel about the name, and I change everything all at once and the customer says, I hate it, I would never buy that, 
okay, what did they, what caused that reaction? So we'd rather test smaller increments uh, to get us to the point where we can test the whole thing. Uh, and I think the way that we want to be able to collaborate with folks from different functions and different backgrounds is to first have a conversation to understand for anything that we want to test, any, anything that, that is out there, um, what would have to be true for, for this to be a success, right? What would have to be true um, for what we want to learn to be um, a rousing success? And then figure out how to design a test to determine to what extent that thing actually is true. Um, and the more you can do the thinking process and the test design together, the more likely you can then go and divide up the work and, and go execute the tests individually, depending on who's most skilled against the various different tests. So I know, Jennifer, you work with a lot of great strategists in the past. So could you share with us some exemplifier traits of those strategists in, in comments? So what's interesting to me is that um, I've met some great strategists, and they come from all different backgrounds. So engineers make great strategists. Artists make great strategists. Uh, English literature majors can make great <laughs> strategists. It's, it's really about mindset, right? It's about a desire to bring together the rigor of analysis and the imagination of creativity to actually make real choices, to, to help an organization move forward. And so I think between those two things, the sort of the ability to balance the two sides of our brain and, and the different toolkits, that makes a great strategist. I think um, another thing that makes a great strategist is a desire to work together with others. Um, as I've said, I don't think it's very easy to be a strategist all by yourself. It sometimes happens. I think Steve Jobs was a masterful strategist and he mainly did it all in his own mind. But there's been one Steve Jobs, right? Mm -hmm. The rest of us are not Steve Jobs and that's probably good for us for many reasons, right? Um, and so rather than trying to have it all in our own heads, the ability for you, Michelle, and I to together uh, figure out what are the possible choices, how would we test them, and how do we want to make a choice, I believe we would wind up in a better place. So those are really the two things that I, I think are really critical for being a great strategist. Well, let's talk more about integrated thinking. And I think you uh, wrote a book about integrated thinking. If you don't mind sharing with us some of your example of using the concept of integrated thinking and helping a company uh, revamp strategy and become successful. Integrative thinking um, is a tool we use alongside strategy. So in strategy, we say you have to make real choices, you have to make trade-offs or you're not going to win. But sometimes you'll look at the choice in front of you. I can either do this or I can do that. You look at it and you say, ugh, like there's just, those are off, like choosing is awful. Neither of those are good enough or if I choose one, I'm giving up too much of the other. I genuinely, genuinely don't believe I can win if I make this trade-off. So integrative thinking is a tool you can use to say, okay, is there a solution that takes the best of this option and the best of that option and creates something new? a new possibility that doesn't exist today, a new way of solving the problem that begins with the raw materials of the choices in front of me. And so um, in the book, we write about Lego. So everybody, I think everybody in the world loves Lego, except for maybe moms and dads who step on it too much and then <laughs> they don't love it in that moment. But Lego, of course, is, is a still largely uh, based in, in Denmark. It's a, a Danish uh, toy company that makes little plastic bricks largest toy company in the world, one of the most successful toy companies in the world, and they don't make anything else. They just make mm. Lego. And so um, what they did do for a very long time is licensing relationships. So a big movie company would come to them and say, we would like you to make Lego based on the Star Wars movies, or we would like you to make 
Lego based on the Harry Potter movies. And they would do that and they'd split the money. Um, and then over time, they're like, well, actually, we could do a video game or uh, something that is based on the Lego characters. So like a Lego Star Wars video game. And those were also very successful and they split the revenue. So before long, uh, someone comes along and says, well, why do we have to split the revenue with these entertainment companies? Couldn't Lego just create its own entertainment? Couldn't Lego make its own characters in its own movies? And Lego said, it sounds like a good idea. We don't have to split the money with anyone. And so they made a movie. And it is not the movie you're thinking of. Because before the big famous Lego movie, they tried before and they made a movie called The Adventures of Clutch Powers. Never heard no. of all that. <laughs> You've never heard of it. You are not alone. Very few people have heard of it. And that is because, in the words of their former CEO, Jorgen Vignitstrup, it was not a very good movie. And it was not a very good movie because they had struggled with a trade-off. And the trade-off was between making a great movie mm -hmm. and protecting the Lego brand. Right. So they were worried that if they hired a brilliant creative team and gave that team creative control, that they might do something that put the Lego brand at risk. Right. They might put in jokes that offended people or they might, you know, they, they would have too much control and they would destroy the Lego brand. And so they said, we are going to maintain all of the creative control. We are going to have sign off on everything. We are going to make we're going to hire them to do this as opposed to any other model. And what that means is, if you know anything about creative talent, no really great creative talent is going to say, yes, I will make a movie where you all. have final say, right? There's no way. And so it's not a very good movie. It's pretty dull. It's very earnest and true to the brand. And so um, when a few years later, a major motion picture studio came to, to Lego and said, would you like to make a movie? They were very nervous because they had the same trade-off, right? Do we keep all the control ourselves, insist that Lego have final say? Or do we try to get a great movie and give creative control to great directors and great writers? And our natural reaction is to say, well, the last time it didn't work. What do you, are you just going to give a little more creative control? Mm -hmm. Or you know, what's the compromise? That's right. And Jorgen at the time said, no, I need, I need to think about this differently. What I truly want is not just a good movie, but a great movie. Mm -hmm. And I don't just want a movie that's okay for the Lego brand. I actually want a movie that is incredibly great for the Lego brand, like that right. makes Lego even stronger than it was before. So a much higher bar. And he said, how do I get that? I have to think creatively about this. Mm -hmm. So what he did realize was to get anyone who is creative talent to do this movie, he had to say to them, you have control. Like he had to tell them, you get, we're not going to interfere on one condition. Before you write anything, before you animate anything, before you do anything, we need you to go spend some real time, not with us, the leaders of the company, not, you know, in the Lego store. We need you to go spend time with the biggest Lego fans in the world, children. We need you to go play Lego with kids. And their belief was that if these filmmakers spent real time with kids who truly love and cherish Lego, that those filmmakers would fall in love with Lego like those children do. And then they would do anything to protect the company, its products, and those kids. I love right? this. They wouldn't do anything to hurt mm. those children who love Lego so much. And so it's a very creative answer that says, I, I actually want these filmmakers to feel inspired and excited and, and want to go do great things. And I, I want us to feel safe that they're going to protect our brand. And so the outcome was ultimately the Lego movie, huge, massive global success, nominated for an Academy Award. And of course, Lego was able to take all of those characters and turn them into Lego and make lots of money on the toys, right? So it actually was brilliantly successful both as a film 
and for Lego's business. And that was really the kind of integrative thinking, bringing the best of both together that we talk about and write about in the book. So, you know, the pandemic has brought unthinkable harms and sufferings on one hand. On the other hand, we also saw um, imaginable innovation happening in terms of technology. So what you have been seeing so far in terms of how businesses has evolved from a strategic perspective? Yeah, I mean, we are in a moment of wild uncertainty. Um, I think most of us have never lived through anything quite like this. If we're lucky, we've never lived through, through this kind of uncertainty, although certainly some folks have. Um, and so I think trying to control it is probably not useful, right? Mm-hmm. What we need to be able to do is, is think about um, what do we believe has changed when it comes to consumers, when it cha- comes to our employees, when it comes to, to the world we live in, what has changed permanently and what has changed just for now? Right. And what does that mean for the choices I need to make? So there were things we were told were impossible that we've now figured out actually possible. It is possible for massive organizations to have every single person more or less working from home. We were told that was impossible. Mm -hmm. Turns out it's possible. (laughs) Uh, And so how do we think about what in our world has changed forever? What, has just changed for now? And what do we need to, to do differently given that? You know, I'm going to ask you a last question uh, in terms of what excites you the most. So what areas of strategy or technology excite you the most? And what do you think society is underappreciating right now that we should pay more attention to? So it's maybe a bit cliche. I do think that artificial intelligence and data science are, are extraordinarily exciting. But the thing that excites me about them um, is the ability, our opportunity, the space we have to design what we want them to be. So Mm -hmm. we've already had examples of AI and intelligent systems um, being biased. We've had examples of them um, being used for evil. Yeah. And that's a choice that we Mm -hmm. could make, but we could also make a different one. We could also say, How does artificial intelligence, machine learning, create the space for us to be more human? Mm -hmm. How does it help us be more fair, more kind, more just? And what would we design if that was our goal? Mm -hmm. And I think, um, you know, the kinds of efficiencies that can be created by artificial intelligence and machine learning give us space to ask those questions. And that's what I'm excited about. Well, that's amazing. I love to end our episode in such a positive note. And thank you so much, Jennifer, for sharing your thoughts with us. And I really hope to see you very soon in person. And I know this pandemic has been driving everybody crazy. Uh, And I'm looking forward to talk to everybody in our next episode. Thank you, Jennifer. Comments, views, and opinions expressed in this podcast do not constitute as business or investment advice. Comments mentioned by podcast participants are solely their own and do not reflect the view of Analytic by Design and its constitutes.